and starting the conversation what is the meaning of ganja jumping and why has it received a lot of attention in recent times thank you very much aditya for the question so gun jumping in essence means that um an early implementation of a transaction that should have been notified uh, that maybe was not notified and that has been implemented before uh, a merger merger control clearance was obtained by the relevant um competition authority so in the eu it, under the eu merger regulation there are two distinct obligations one is the obligation to notify a deal um if that deal um meets the relevant thresholds provided in the eu merger regulation and that's basically when there is a transaction and uh, the parties involved have a worldwide turnover of 5 billion and an eu wide turnover of each of at least two parties of 250 million then the parties are required under article 41 of the eu merger regulation to notify that deal to the commission and um similarly article 71 provides that there is a standstill obligation so if you fall under the thresholds of the eu merger regulation that transaction needs to be notified to the commission and you cannot implement uh, that transaction before it has been obtained, has been cleared by the commission and um so the reason for these two provisions are that first the obligation to notify allows the commission to exercise ex-ante control over transactions that may harm competition so it can essentially review a transaction clear it or block it in, in the most rare cases or apply um, remedies um, in terms of the standstill obligation it is um a matter of the commission to be able to control that a transaction is not implemented before um it has been cleared so that it may not harm competition in the market and so the the topic of gun jumping has been around in the EU and in the US than that since the um early beginning of the e-merger regulation in 1989 However, there has been very little guidance in terms of documents published by the commission and also very little guidance from the jurisprudence of the European Court of Justice. And this has changed recently. There have been a number of cases that have clarified to a certain extent the scope of the um, obligation to notify and the standstill obligation, and these are in the LT's uh, PT Portugal case in April 2018. Ernst and Young KPMG Denmark in May 2018 and more recently Canon Toshiba in June 2019 and also the ongoing Illumina Grave saga so these cases have to a certain extent helped to clarify the scope of gun jumping what the parties are allowed to do what the parties should not do but i have to say that overall gun jumping is still remains a very esoteric and uncertain area of law Thank you so much sir for your insights that's related that's to gun jumping it's sure so thank you thank you so much for your insights related to gun jumping it's there's received a lot of attention because recent cases also that you mentioned secondly i would like to ask 
parties to a merger fail to notify the relevant competition authority the relevant jurisdiction about the transaction right so the commission can effectively under the eu merger regulation it has competence to impose fines on the parties either for a failure to notify a transaction or for a failure to comply with the standstill obligation and this is provided in article 14.1 of the eu merger regulation and the fines can be quite hefty and in in the cases that just talked about in the beginning they're actually quite large um, they can reach up to 10% of the aggregate worldwide turnover of the parties. So I think um, there is quite an important deterrent effect. Uh, parties do not want to engage in gun jumping because it, it will cost them quite a bit of money and it's also obviously uh, reputational damage in a sense. So even if the Commission imposes a fine, it can still um, clear uh, the transaction and then in parallel, why, in parallel impose a fine many many times what happens is that the commission will review a deal and then uh, come across information or a third party provides information or or a competitor or a customer that the parties have engaged in gun jumping and it can then open an investigation in parallel and impose fines in relation to gun jumping yes thank you for your answer with respect to this Merger notification. Merger notification is a huge, say, I would say, a huge responsibility on the part of parties. Otherwise, uh, there are hefty fines. In India, too, we have seen a gun jumping. What is the distinction between cases imposing gun jumping fines for failure to not versus for implementation of a transaction before clearance? Right. So, as I said at the beginning, the Article 4.1 of the EU merger regulation imposes the obligation to notify. And Article 7.1 imposes the standstill obligation. So, um, the, the distinction between the two has been clarified by the case law of the Court of Justice. And specifically, this was clarified in the Marine Harvest case of 2014 and more recently in the Altice PT Portugal of April 2018. So in both these cases, um, the acquiring party, let's say, um, acquired or rather notified to the commissioner transaction. But while the transaction, while the commission was reviewing the transaction, they um, found out that um, the parties have actually acquired de facto control of um, of the target business so that they have infringed the standstill obligation. Um, and, and in these cases, the court clarified that um, when you fail to notify a transaction, um, automatically you will breach also the standstill obligation so that when, when there is a deal and you have not notified it and you implement the transaction, the commission can effectively impose two fines, one on the basis of Article 4, the obligation to notify, and the other one on the, on the basis of Article 7.1, the standstill obligation. And um, both of the fines can be up to 10% of the aggregate worldwide turnover. And the court clarified that um, the objective of each of those obligations, the obligation to notify and the standstill obligation, are different as I explained in the beginning. So the obligation um, to notify allows the Commission to exercise ex ante control over 
you know, the merger control regime in the EU and the standstill obligation um, prevents harm to competition. So the Court of Justice said that since both of these provisions pursue different goals, um, they do comply, or rather they don't infringe the general principles of EU law, specifically Nibis and Edem, where you cannot impose you know, two fines for the same conduct. Um, so in, in these cases, Marine Harvest and Altice, the court also clarified that a failure to notify the transaction constitutes an instantaneous infringement because you have failed to notify, so the infringement happened instantaneously, and there is a limitation period of three years, whereas a failure to comply with the standstill obligation is a continuous infringement that um, occurs until the transaction has been cleared by the Commission or the Competition Authority, and um, this is subject to a limitation period of five years. Great, thank you. And making us understand the distinction between these two kinds of cases and also clarifying the provisions. Uh, I would also like to ask how are likely to yield additional guidance concerning what types of pre-closing activities constitute prohibit Sure, thank you very much for that. So Altice and Canon Toshiba. So Altice um, is from April 2018. I think it's currently pending an appeal before the European Court. Um, so the, these two cases um, have shed light on different aspects of gun jumping, but they're quite interesting and important, I'd say. So starting with Altice, in that case, the commission imposed a fine on Altice of about 124 million. And um, so Altice intended to acquire um, PT Portugal, um, which was a competitor, and they notified the transaction to the commission. Um, the commission found out, however, that in the transaction agreements that were signed, during you know um, the, the notification period contained some provisions that allowed ITs to um, exercise control over the target. So in fact, um, the provisions in the transaction agreement gave ITs certain veto rights over appointments of managers or over certain business strategies of the target. And the commission considered that these veto rights that were included in the transaction agreements gave, in fact, uh, de facto control by LTs uh, over PT Portugal before the transaction was cleared. And so considered ultimately that this was a case of gun jumping. Uh, in this case, also quite interesting, the commission found out that there was a, a quite a large amount of information exchange of competitively information between ITs and PT Portugal in the due diligence process so prior even to the parties agreeing on the transaction but also after and, and during the notification process and while the commission was reviewing so this per se is not gun jumping uh, it could be more a case of you know an infringement of article 101 so an horizontal agreement uh, competitors should not share competitively sensitive information um, but but in this case the commission found that the level of detail of the information and the way in which the information was shared between the parties between 
without having a proper, you know, firewalls in place or clean team agreements. Um, so normally, in a transaction, you have a reduced group of people. They called clean teams that are able to on both parties, so the acquirer and the target, that could receive competitively sensitive information, but not disclose it um, any outside of the business. And this is shared exclusively for the purpose of um, the merger notification. But in the LTs case, the court found that um, this information that LTs received from PT Portugal, the target it was acquiring, and it was still, still being um, subject to review by the commission, it enabled LTs to actually exercise this um, decisive influence over the targets before obtaining clearance. So, so quite an interesting case, LTs. It kind of sets uh, the limits on what parties can do in terms of provisions in transactions agreement. Um, many times you have a transaction agreement where you, the one party, the acquiring party, wants to protect the value of the business that is being acquired, so of the target, and you can include certain provisions in the transaction agreements that say, instance, um, the target should not divest any of its businesses, the target should not um, acquire uh, certain loans of a certain level. So this is all acceptable, which has been confirmed by the court, as long as it's, it's, it, the only purpose is to protect um, the investment um, and the value of the target. If it goes beyond that and you're actually able to exercise control over the target, even if it is on a de facto basis, then this would be a case of gun jumping. So that's LTs. Um, it also has very important consequences, obviously, on the information exchange. Then Canon Toshiba, um, it's a different um, different type of case. Um, this was the commission fined Canon um, 125 million around June 2019. Then the judgment came out very recently, I think in May 2022 by the general court. And this is essentially the way in which the transaction was um, designed um, led inherently to gun jumping. So in this case, Canon intended to acquire Toshiba Medical Systems. At that time, Toshiba was in financial difficulties, let's say, and they wanted to get rid of their medical business as soon as possible. And so Canon, came up with a structure, transaction structure, um, which, is called, which is called a warehousing arrangement, whereby the, it would be a two-step transaction structure. So in a first step, um, an interim buyer um, agreed by Canon and Toshiba would acquire the medical business, Toshiba Medical Systems, from Toshiba. Um, for I think it was for a very small amount of 800 euros. And, and that sort of acquisition would be parked, um, but it would enable Toshiba to, to when they issue their annual accounts, to not include the, the loss-making business of Toshiba Medical System. Then in a second step, um, Canon would formally acquire Toshiba Medical System, um, but the issue was that Canon only notified the transaction uh, before implementing the second step. So the first step, where they put the business into, into a parking structure, warehousing structure, was not notified to the commission. And so the commission, um, while it was reviewing the notification, 
considered that um, this the two-step um, transaction structure in fact uh, constituted one single transaction and it considered that um, there was a direct functional link be between step one the warehousing arrangement and step two the ultimate acquisition uh, by canon of toshiba medical system and therefore um, the, the commission which was further um, also um, verified but, but said that um, the first step constituted an early uh, partial implementation um, of the transaction whereby Canon would be able to um, at least partially exercise control over um, Toshiba medical system. And so that's overall the, the case. Um, there is guidance in the EU in the consolidated jurisdictional notice in relation to warehousing arrangement. Um, they were never seen um, with good eyes here in Brussels, um, or in Europe rather. Um, but now, it's, it's, it, after this case, it's a bit more clear that parties should probably pay a lot of attention before doing these types of um, transaction structures, let's say. Great. Thanks for informing us about these cases. These are interesting cases bringing to us with respect to gun jumping, also deepening our understanding on that subject and the also under the parties, the transaction. Under EU law, the term jump to distinct the closely related violations of UMR. First is failing to file a merger with the European Commission. And second is implementing a notified merger before obtaining clearance. Sir, can you shed some light upon these two provisions? Sure. So, as, as I said in the beginning, um, there are two distinct obligations under the EU merger regulation. So, one is the, is the obligation to notify under Article 4.1. Um, the other one is the obligation to not implement the transaction before it has been cleared by the Commission. So Article 4.1 and Article 7.1. Um, these are distinct obligations, uh, but linked together, obviously. Um, so the, the first, the failure to notify is quite straightforward. When you have a transaction and um, the transaction meets the turnover thresholds indicated in the merger regulation, you have to notify the deal to the Commission. Um, and if you don't notify the Commission, um, either intentionally or negligently, um, then you may be subject to fines. Um, so, because it, it is a straightforward case of gun jumping. So perhaps the most difficult part is what actually constitutes um, an, an implementation of a transaction. So, while the Commission is reviewing a deal, um, what does it mean? when uh, a party engages in an early implementation um, so that you breach the standstill obligation. So this is um, essentially what the you know case law in recent years has revolved around. And I think the most important case um, in relation to this is the Ernst & Young um, KPMG uh, Denmark case of, um, I think it's in May 2018. And there was a recent ruling as well on this um, in May 2022, if I'm not mistaken. So just explain a little bit about this case and the relevance of it. So 
in this case, Ernst & Young um, wanted to acquire KPMG Denmark. Um, well, the case was under review in before the competition authority in Denmark. So this the commission was not... Um, but, so what happened is that KPMG Denmark, while the case was being reviewed by the Danish competition authority, um, terminated its agreement with KPMG International so that you know the transaction could so that Ernst Young could acquire KPM, KPMG Dan Denmark and at the time the Danish competition authority um, considered that this was an early implementation of the transaction and imposed a fine uh, on Ernst Young which was then appealed um, before a national court in Denmark. The national court in Denmark um, then made a preliminary reference to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So when there are questions of EU law in the EU, any national court can ask the general court or the Court of Justice of the EU to um, you know, clarify questions related to EU law. And um, Justice looked at this and came up with a very um, interesting solution. So essentially, the court said that um, transactions that are ancillary, so they're part of the transactions, but they are ancillary and there is no direct functional link between um, the transaction and the acquisition of control over the target um, are not uh, are not necessary to achieve a change of control and do not fall within the scope of Article 7 of the standstill obligation. So in essence, what the court was saying is that the fact that KPMG Denmark um, tried to separate from KPMG International before the Danish Competition Authority actually cleared the transaction was not um, important because it did not uh, achieve a change of control for, by Ernst & Young over KPMG. It was a ancillary transaction that was related to the main transaction, but it did not lead to a change of control. And therefore there was no infringement of the standstill obligation. And this court is quite important because um, it essentially clarified that um, parties can um, implement a transaction either uh, fully or partially and that it, it also clarified that a transaction is implemented and I will quote here the, the court so the concentration is implemented only by transactions that in whole or in part in fact or in law contribute to a change of control uh, in a target undertaking so this is in part related to the Canon case that we discussed earlier. Um, and the Canon case, actually, uh, if you read the judgment, it refers to Ernst & Young continuously. continually. And in, the, in that case, the court found that um, the acquisition, the, the two-step warehousing transaction procedure that we discussed um, actually um, meant a partial implementation by um, Canon and that there was a direct functional link in, in that transaction that led to gun jumping and this was not the case in the uh, KPMG, in the Ernst & Young case. 
So quite quite an important case that, um, to a certain extent, clarified the stance of relation. Thank you for clarification and also distinct kind of jumping violations. Uh, do you think if a competition compliance is diligently competition compliance programs or advocacy programs as also uh, propagated by regulators around the globe if competition comes we would prevent cases and violations of gun jumping uh-huh. so it, it to a certain extent yes i mean in every transaction it's very important to have gun jumping guidelines uh, in place or gun jumping advice i have to say that gun jumping still remains a very um you know esoteric area of law there, there are all these cases that shed some light to what, what it means to partially implement a transaction um but every case is different and so while it is very important to have proper compliance uh, in place um you need to monitor throughout the transaction and um perhaps just to give you some examples when you are for instance um in the due diligence process um you, you need to kind of set the boundaries of what the parties should be able to do what what kind of information they, sh- they can exchange um while they're, they're considering the transaction also when you draft the transaction agreements um you need to be very careful what type of provisions you can include um so that you you can protect the value of the target business but you don't go beyond so that you actually um are able to exercise de facto control over the target which is what happened in uh, the um Altis case and then it, it really depends on the case i mean i i have seen instances where um the parties have notified a transaction to the commission and then went together to a trade fair um and appeared as as you know the new entity let's say and the commission did not consider this to be gun jumping so it, it is quite um difficult to assess what constitutes gun jumping but in normal context i would think that the best is to be cautious and that if you are in an m&a transaction you need to continuously monitor and be aware that there is a risk of gun jumping you also need to be aware that you know not only the commission but um, competition authorities throughout the world you said earlier aditya that the in india there have been a number of gun jumping cases and fines as well so competition authorities are well aware and they will probably not hesitate to to you know investigate and impose fines so it is very important to um, maintain a proper eye and, and compliance in place Yes, that's correct. Thank you for telling us about your opinion on. Uh, My last question would be: What is your opinion on the realization of penalties by the competition regulators, the national competition authority, as the lawyers, lawyers representing parties? We file appeals against the cases of national competition, of these competition commissions, against the appellate tribunals or appellate. jurisdictions the appellate courts in a national jurisdiction whatever it is but when there are pending litigations on 
Latin injunction in the matter is a stay order in the matter. So these appeals are stuck before courts, and this might take certain years, certain. Then there is nothing. There is no progress on the ongoing proceeding. What do you think on this particular as? What I'll explain you the context. In India, what is happening that the Competition Commission has imposed more than seventeen thousand crores of. the parties but less than 2% or less than 1% has been realized till now appeals filed by parties in the appellate tribunal or the supreme court of india or the other different high courts so penalty and fine imposition and also realization by the competition regulators Okay, so that's very interesting. Actually, I did not, I did not know this, and, and yeah, it seems to be quite a big problem if that's the case. Um, I'm not entirely sure how it works in the national jurisdictions, as I'm, I'm mainly involved in EU law, although I'm a Spanish qualified lawyer, I have to say. But in in the EU um, court system, it is quite straightforward. I mean, when you um, get a fine from the European Commission and you appeal to the General Court, um, the so. It, that appeal has uh, non-suspensory effects, so the you, the company effectively needs to pay the fine to the commission, and it will not be suspended just because you want to appeal, because that will obviously uh, in you know incentivize parties to to appeal to the court of justice, because then they can get the fine suspended. But that is not the case here, so I don't know the percentage of you know how much of the fines the commission obtains. But um, I guess it, it will be quite high, probably higher than in India. Um, so I guess the court can impose interim measures. Um, I have not seen this done very often. I, I don't necessarily see the parties asking for these types of interim measures. Let's say to suspend payment of the fine. Um, I, I would think that the parties um, in, in Europe and um, in court proceedings in the EU, they would normally proceed to pay the fine um, and then await a decision by the court, effectively. So, but but it's quite interesting what you're saying in relation to India, and I can see how how that can be a big problem to the competition authority. Yes, correct. Thank you so much for uh, telling us about the position in EU because. It- Never party files an appeal. They only have to submit or pay the ten percent of the total fine, and then they can. Appeal. So nobody can take the right to legal representation. representation. But then, if appeals are stuck in courts because the high courts or supreme court, because they do not have competition experts, and every court cannot have competition experts in some. Created a competition law world map. If you have seen on my LinkedIn, we know that in a lot of competition jurisdictions around the globe, we do not have even competition commission. So, so a lot of uh, there are a lot of conflicts in our in our law as well with respect enforcement part of it. But we may host a different conversation on it. Um, lastly, asking you about since we have been Uh, how is the experience as an antitrust attorney and law and its advisory aspects in EU? So, do you mean more generally, or related to gun jumping?
हेलो या या स्मॉल stint uh, traineeship uh, at the European Commission and i would say that um, it is quite an inter- interesting field of law it is um, not not as formalistic as for instance corporate law although it is very much related and linked to the corporate aspect but you don't deal so much with drafting agreements um you, you rather um deal with you know a lot more of the economics side of things in in dealing with market shares and barriers to entry or the number of competitors kind of these theories of harm in competition so it's it's quite an interesting field because i'd say it's very open um it 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 it's a mix of things it can be very varied when you, when you work in an international law firm um it's also not only related to one jurisdiction um you normally work on you know for instance merger notifications worldwide where you engage with local council in many jurisdictions china and australia and india and, and many others and you deal with those um so it is quite an interesting um field of law in that sense then in addition to that um especially in europe but i think all over the world um so antitrust law is changing tremendously um not only because of the you know the let's say the advent of um you know the the tech um era where everything has been looking into algorithms or the gatekeepers in europe with the digital markets act so all of this um has obviously put a lot of attention on competition law and it's evolving very rapidly there are a lot of international fora the oecd the international competition network um in europe the european competition network where all these tech topics and many other topics such as gun jumping um are being discussed and it's just a constantly uh, evolving topic in spe- specifically in the eu right now a lot of the um guidelines and regulations are currently being reviewed and updated and so overall i have to say as an antitrust practitioner it really keeps you on your toes you have to constantly keep learning and yeah i think it's a very exciting field and i recommend any aspiring lawyer or economist to to give it a try and and see if it works for them thank you so much sir for sharing your experience conversation looking forward to conversations in future as well on various other topics related to competition law and